What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to episode 632 with my guest, Catherine Morgan Schaffler. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, which is a place for honesty about all the bullshit pinballing around in our brains. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a doctor, but I am a hobby, hypochondriac. I hate when I fuck a joke up. Uh, the website for this show is metalpod.com. Metalpod, also the social media handles you can follow us at, and the Venmo, should you care to do a uh, a one-time Venmo donation. Um, let's dive into some some surveys. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Silent Tuesday in Fog. And uh, some of the things you tell yourself about yourself, ironically, that I am worth getting to know and that I am a disgusting filth of a human. Now that's a dating profile. Isn't it weird how we can hold two completely incongruous thoughts at the same time? That was one of the things that I learned in therapy is... Two things that are seemingly opposite can be happening at the same time. And I, I, I think a lot of times that's why it's so tempting to engage in black and white thinking be, because we want to go, well, which one's true? But the world isn't black and white. This is from the struggle and the sentence survey filled out by Zoe and uh, about her bipolar mixed episode. She writes, my brain has 200 arms and vibrates and breathes fire and wants me dead, and I'm supposed to just walk the dog and do the dishes? Uh, snapshot from her life. Hiding in the bathroom to masturbate until I gave myself a headache because it was the least destructive option to make my brain shut up. My partner was watching TV in the next room and thought everything was fine. Thank you for sharing that, Zoe. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Amazon Lady, and uh, she struggles with rapid cycling mania and depression, and uh, she gives a snapshot from her struggle. She writes, one day I'm manically cleaning my house, interrupting and not knowing when to shut the fuck up, irrationally irritable, and spending all my money on DoorDash and shit I do not need. The next day, I feel such deep guilt and shame over how I behaved the day before that I can't even get out of bed. I do not want to see or talk to anyone. I do not deserve to be taken care of, even by myself. Wow, that's intense. That is intense. Thank you for sharing that. 
I have experienced hypomania, which is uh, like the younger brother of mania, uh, but I've never experienced pure mania, and I've never experienced the profound depression that people with bipolar 1 experience after they've been in a manic episode, and that, it sounds really, really heavy. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Stephanie Sakes, and uh Some of the things you tell yourself about yourself, she writes, I tell myself I'm average. There's nothing wrong with being average. Part of me says, stop saying you're average. You are much more than average. The voice in my head has a hard time with solutions and seems to just have black and white answers about myself. Ugh, I live in a gray world and love being in the gray. Dot, dot, dot. Thank you for that. And thank you for the reminder about the the black and white and the gray. Gray is so hard. Life just life is so tempting to live at zero or ten, but so mind-boggling to live at five, at least for people with compulsive personalities. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences uh, survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself, uh, did I not get her? Oh, Goldiefish. Uh, she was hospitalized for postpartum depression slash psychosis, and... She writes, I was a patient and I went a month untreated for a lack of understanding what was going on at the time. My son was five months old at that time and never would I have placed the two together. I heard things, saw things, and was under the impression that someone planted something in my head. Nothing made sense. I still carry so much pain and shame for this and I'm hoping to eventually meet someone who has gone through this. My depression was self-sabotaging and so intense that I fell into a psychosis. I turned into a lab rat for months until my meds were what they needed to be. So yes, it helped, but it wasn't fun. Uh, I believe it was our guest, Jenny Yip, that talked about having a, um, I think it was postpartum OCD. I don't think it was psychosis, but there might have been some psychosis in there. If there's ever a topic that you want to know more about with the podcast, just Google a keyword that you're looking to hear about and include the word mental pod. And if there's an episode or a guest blog or something uh, related to that, it should show up in the results. This is from the racism survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Donatella. And... uh, she writes, where, wow, where to begin? Um, and this, this was an answer to the question, share any experiences you've had with racism, when it happened, and how old you were. She writes, wow, where to begin? Let's just go to when I felt it the most. As a Latina woman, I come from a very interracial mix. I'm dark-skinned, but my daughters came out very light. Let's just say white uh, more on their father's side. Many times, I was assumed to be their babysitter and told to my face that if their mother heard them call me mama, she would be very offended. Do you remember how it felt when it happened? I wanted to break their face. I wanted to scream, how dare you? Do you need to see proof? I had people calling the police thinking that I had stole my child. I'd been left waiting for hours in airport security check because of it. I was so fed up. How do you feel about it now? I think you can tell I'm still angry. My girls are women now, and I still get the look when they call me mama or when I go to their school function. Oh, mommy, not mama. Um, Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I can't imagine 
what what that has got to be like. Uh, this is also from the racism survey. This is filled out by a uh, African American woman named Stephanie, and she writes, uh, "I was in my mid thirties. Uh, I was in Italy on vacation, and the housekeeper at the hotel." Um, in parentheses, Hotel Mozart, asked me and no other person for my room key card to to prove that I was staying there. Uh, While in my late teens, this guy I was hooking up with told me we would have to stop having sex because I was black and he didn't want to have to explain anything to his friends. In my early 20s, I was living in Spokane because my work schedule had me out at night with not too many options for transportation. I would have to walk home alone. These guys in a car drove around the block a few times calling me the N-word with the hard R. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? Alone and confused. How do you feel about it now? It will always hurt. Thank you for sharing that. Man, it, it, um, it seems like there, it's so much two steps forward, one step back. Just when it, it seems like society is moving forward, something will happen. But I guess that speaks to the fact that no matter how much society as a whole may inch forward, there's still going to be pockets of people that are going to be living like it's uh, 1640. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, I talk to my therapist, Heidi, every couple of weeks, and uh, she she helps keep my, my brain tuned up. Uh, if you've never tried therapy, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in it. Uh, I, I can't even imagine where I would be without uh, the, the help of compassionate and wise <clears throat> excuse me, therapists. If you're thinking of giving uh, therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Um, I like when you sign up for a therapist. It's pretty simple. You go through um, and list some of the things that are important to you to you in a therapist and topics that you want to address and you can always say no I don't like you know the ones that you've given me or that you're giving me to select from and they can give you more options to to choose from so if you want to live a more empowered life therapy can get you there visit betterhelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p dot com slash mental and uh, make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast this episode is sponsored by when breath becomes air when breath becomes air by paul kalanathy is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? 
When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then finally, this is from the Struggle in the Sentence Survey, and this is filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Single Daddy 420. And about his codependency, he writes, Is it rude that I haven't asked my therapist about her trauma yet? My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> the greatest source of our suffering. Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. It is very hard to heal and dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Catherine Morgan Schaffler. Uh, you're a therapist. You're an author. You're a perfectionist. <laughs> a very loaded term. Thank you for coming, by the way. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. And thank you for rolling the dice and being willing to be in the room with somebody uh, at the tail end of a cold or flu or whatever. It's not COVID. I know that. But yeah. thank you for, for being willing to still come. Yeah. We're all rolling the dice yes. these days, I think. You will regret it deeply in about two days. But for right now... <laughs> It seems like a good decision. I have a child under five, so there's not a moment in my household in the last eight months where someone has not been sick. So I can't imagine how, on, on top of you working probably full-time, writing books, uh, being a mom, and uh, are you with a partner? Yes. And being a partner. Then... All of these germs come walking in through the door oh, going, the see if you can handle the week with this amount of energy. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know, I know. But, you know, I think everybody, whether you have a small kid or a car that won't start all the time or an elderly parent who needs extra caregiving, like everybody's got their stuff. You Depression. Know? Depression. Trauma. Trauma. You know, and exciting good things that also take up a lot of energy. Dating someone you really like, moving into a new home and, and making it your space. It's like this is this is cutting right into what I get into in the book, which is this idea of balance that there's should be we should all lead static lives that we can just live in and they flow easily and naturally from one day to the next is such bullshit. It's not real. The this idea that success means that you don't get hit by a tsunami every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't uh, have the proverbial, you know, um, whether it's visible or invisible. And I would say most, mostly these kinds of tsunamis, as you put it, when it comes to mental health, are not visible to other people. Yeah. Especially for perfectionists who... um can be very high functioning, high achievers, 
And I don't think anyone can hide their suffering better than the highly functioning person. Because you're not going to... You're not going to see them late for work. You're not going to see no. them, you know, not being able to be chatty and look fine and be showered and yeah. all that stuff. You got to see them eating a bag of cookies over the sink at three in the morning, crying <laughs> about their life choice. Right. Exactly. Uh, your book is called The Perfectionist's <laughs> Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. And uh, there's a lot packed into this book and i i I think one uh congratulations by the way and i think um one of the things that that i don't know it, it seems like you put down your flag with this book is perfectionism doesn't have to be a bad word talk about that 100 percent so the approach to perfectionism currently in the personal development, self-help, whatever you want to call it, space right now is something along the lines of just don't be so much of a perfectionist, right? And the subtext of that is just be less of this thing about you that you actually experience as a pretty central identity marker, right? So perfectionism and perfectionist, that construct is like romanticism and romantics, or activism and activists. Like if you think of yourself as a romantic or an activist or a perfectionist, you tend to think of yourself that way throughout your entire life. And this is backed up in the research too with perfectionists. And so it doesn't make sense to take an eradication approach where you kind of try to get rid of that part of you. Um, An integration approach to anything really, but especially to perfectionism is so much smarter and better in terms of approaching the things about perfectionism that you don't quite understand or the things about who you are that you wish you could edit out of yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't edit things out of ourselves. We have to find a way to make space for everything. And, you know, this is a mode of therapy where it's like all parts are welcome. And it goes with feelings too. You know, we're trying to always figure out how do I not feel so much grief? How do I not feel disappointed? How do I not feel frustrated with my partner? And instead of trying to get rid of those feelings, the better question is, what else do I also feel? Who else am I in addition to somebody who wants something this way and wants this ideal? And just kind of seeing your identity as a whole person, not just this one part of you that's very frustrating or, you know, in terms of emotionally, the one part of the one feeling that you are giving so much energy to that it eclipses the whole landscape in your mind. You're only seeing one color when there's a vibrancy of colors all around you. And and so uh, I imagine one of the things that you're saying is that in being willing to to not get rid of this part of ourselves that can be problematic if left unchecked um, doesn't mean we're stumbling blindly into the area of personal growth without any sort of eye on, oh, is, is this affecting the balance in my life? Rather, you're saying... Let's just, this is just one of the uh, needles on the dashboard of Mm -hmm. who we are as people. Let's not put tape over it. 
let's just keep an eye on it and know that it is a part of me. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And I would even add to that, that it's a wonderful part of you. And that if you learn how to look at your perfectionism as a power and understand that any power has a dichotomous nature, right? Um, Wealth can be philanthropic or it can exploit, you know, um, art can objectify or it can inspire um, so much beauty. There are so many pieces of this that just need boundaries around them, right? And and same with romanticism and activism. It's like you can be who you are in, and this book is about learning how to be more of who you are in the world, not less, not being less of something. But I imagine you also have to be I don't know, vigilant is too strong of a word, but conscious of -hmm. the fact that this thing can begin to turn on us or those around us. Yeah, it's great to have high ideals Mm -hmm. and to be detail-oriented, but if we're missing dinners because we're spell-checking for the ninth time uh, something that we're obsessed about, uh, that's not a good uh, expression of perfectionism. So in your book, how do you lay out um, what is healthy perfectionism, what mm-hmm. to embrace, and what does, you know, yeah, what's a red flag for? It's a great question. And you want to ask yourself two main questions when determining whether your perfectionism is showing up in a healthy way or an, in a dysfunctional way. And the question is, why am I striving? That's the first question. So, and I love that because intent, mm-hmm. if, if we are aware of our intent mm-hmm. doing anything, that's 75% of understanding ourselves and what is a waste of time and what is unhealthy. A 100%. Yes. And why are you striving? Are you striving because you think that getting the thing that you are striving for is then going to allow you to feel happy, to be more attractive in the eyes of others and yourself, to be successful and validated externally, whatever those metrics are for you. Or that's unhealthy, what's called in the research world, maladaptive perfectionism. Or are you striving because, my God, you love it so much, you're so passionate, you can't help it. Even if you had $10 billion, you would still do that work or you would still work so hard to, you know, make that art or connect with that person? And is it coming from a place of you and to your point, value alignment of this is what matters to me. This is what I care about. So a healthy passion, curiosity, Mm -hmm. um, caring about, you know, perhaps the craft of something. Uh, One of the questions I got asked a lot when I was a a stand-up comedian um, by younger comedians would be, what advice do you have for me? Mm -hmm. And my first piece of advice was, don't do it. Find (laughs) anything else. Yeah. Um, But if you decide that it is going to be your path, ask yourself why. Mm -hmm. Are you doing it because you want to be famous? Mm -hmm. Are you doing it because you want to get rich? Are you doing it because you love the craft and history of stand-up comedy and you think you might be at, be able to add something to it, to, to push the next boundary of it? Because those are all three completely different things. Yeah. And I think the majority of 
comedians that get into it get into it for the first two reasons. And you can usually tell pretty early on. I mean, you lived in L.A. for a while. Mm -hmm. This this city is filled with people who came here to fix themselves Mm -hmm. with something that cannot fix themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think the world is is filled with people like that. But some of them condense in certain cities. And L.A. is one of them. New York, you know, where I live is another And it's hard sometimes if you haven't thought about what you value to understand the delineation and separation between, wait, am I doing this for me or am I doing this so that I can broadcast this to others and then become important? So I would imagine having a sense of where love is in in our life, our ability to give it and or receive it and what healthy or unhealthy love looks like would be an important thing if you're going to be a running buddy with your perfectionism. <laughs> running buddy, be, I like that. To be able to understand <laughs> when you're doing it because daddy didn't hug you enough and when you're mm-hmm. doing it because you just fucking love this project that you're working on. Yeah, I mean, you have to know yourself and understand your values. And that's why there's a big list of values in the book. Values are tough because all values on paper sound pretty good. Mm-hmm. So there's not a there's not a value that's very um, polarizing for people in the sense that like no a sense of humor I don't want that who would who would ever value right. that like they all sound good um, but you you know they can't all be equally important to you you really have to do the work to look at them and say you know how much do you value propriety how much do you value um, laughter or sense of humor. How much do you value X, you know, continue on, continue on. And then you're going to get to understanding if the way that you're working is in violation of your values, which is always going to be dysfunctional, whether it's showing up in perfectionism or not. So going back to your original question, that first component is, is why are you striving like this? And the second question you want to ask is how. Uh, even if you have the quote-unquote healthy version of striving, if you're following that intense passion that is internally validate, validated and aligned with your values in a way that's hurting yourself or exploiting or hurting people around not, you. Not getting enough sleep. Right. Canceling appointments. Exactly. Not good. And I think sometimes that's confusing because it takes so much to figure out who we are enough to figure out like what's a good use to what's a good way to spend our time and energy that by the time we figure it out sometimes it can be so exciting almost in a way that you just want to have foot to gas pedal like, mm-hmm. all the time and you've got to rest and take care of yourself especially in our culture where workaholism is celebrated especially if if it is uh connected to immense wealth Mm-hmm. You know, we never look at what was the downside of you working 20 hours a day uh, with three small kids mm-hmm. at home who, mm-hmm. you know, are now teenagers. Did that affect their personalities, their ability to attach and love and, and trust? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, your estate in the Hamptons is fucking gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, some people it's don't value um connections 
with others as much as they value other stuff. And I'm not here to make any judgments on anyone's values. I'll do that for you. Um, And I'm not, nor am I saying it's okay to emotionally neglect your children, right? But I'm just saying that, you know, one thing I talk about in the book is what I call a thousand daggers at once. And that's when maladaptive perfectionists get what they want. And research shows, and I've seen this play out a million times because I used to have a practice on Wall Street, that not only for a perfectionist in a maladaptive space does getting what they want not make them happy, it makes them more upset, mm-hmm. more depressed, more yep. frustrated, more isolated, more pretty much anything bad that you can think of. And the reason that happens is because there are no substitutes for self-worth. And there's no substitute for presence. There's not one. And human connection. Yeah, and human connection. And winning forces you to have to acknowledge that, you know? And so when there's no more top to go up and you still feel lonely, isolated, depressed, it's so painful. It's such a painful experience. I tell a story. This happened years ago. I was working on a... A TV show, and I had recently moved. You know, I've been in Los Angeles for a couple of years, and you know, if you ever drive down Sunset Boulevard, it's it's the kind of the high rent place for billboards of show business things. And I always felt like, man, if the show I was working on wasn't such a dinky little cable show, and they took a billboard out on Sunset Boulevard, I would feel like my show belonged in mm. the rest of show business, and mm. I was included and validated. Mm. And this might not have been as <coughs> excuse me as um conscious uh, maybe conscious mm-hmm. it was more of a feeling mm-hmm. in me a desire mm-hmm. for it and one year the show i was working on took out a billboard on sunset boulevard <gasps> yeah. and i went and looked at it yeah. and i lost respect for sunset boulevard oh and in that moment i realized something was deeply wrong inside mm-hmm. me there was mm-hmm. something that could never be filled mm-hmm. by the external mm-hmm. and it wouldn't be years until i discovered oh it was human connection mm-hmm. and a sense of purpose and meaning and all these other things but and how did you discover that discover those things by having to get sober Mm. by knowing that i was going to die if i if i didn't ask for help Mm -hmm. Uh, and being willing to accept that the very definition of help is being open to the form in which it arrives Mm. rather than saying well it's only going to be somebody i'm comfortable with and they're only going to you know say do these things that i already like doing Mm -hmm. no that wouldn't be help Mm -hmm. yeah we want the help to look the way that we want it to look and our healing to look the way we not only look the way but take the amount of time yes six months to a year i can do that seven years No, I need a different plan. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, one of the things that I heard uh, Prince say, and I'm in no way comparing my my career in show business to his, but he said towards the end of his career, I've been to the top of the mountain and there's nothing there. Mm. And that I wrote down Prince as, as I was going through your book because that yeah. thing that you just shared about yeah. getting what you want mm-hmm. – you are faced with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if anyone listening is in that spot, it's really 
an opportunity for you to get the feedback from your body and mind and thoughts, that sense of misery or doom that you might right in this moment be overwhelmed by would not be present if there weren't a part of you that was aware that you deserve more and you are awake to that part of you. That's why you're in pain. So let's say there there's a person out there listening right now who has just uh, made their way to CEO over corporation. Mm -hmm. They're getting the money they dreamed of, the corner office, all of that stuff. And a week into it, these feelings of anger, Mm -hmm. doom, Mm -hmm. being trapped, you know, whatever they may be, what's a checklist this person can go through? I think that person's best next move is to connect with another human being honestly. And, you know, there are lots of ways to do that. I'm a therapist, so obviously therapy is on that list, but it can really be anybody that you feel is trustworthy. Um, And if you don't have a trustworthy person in your life, you know, being able to do what you mentioned before and look around and say, like, who might be able to understand this, you know, and just beginning to speak out loud what is inside. There is a great power in letting your words hit the air. And you double, triple, quadruple that power when you let your words hit the air and another human being hears them. But even if you can't find another human being, say out loud to yourself, I am not happy. I am scared. I am alone and lonely. You know, there's power in that. And, you know, you... There's not. I'm not here to give someone the like one trick that everyone else knows that right. that your listeners don't know. You know, if but it the trick is to kind of do one thing at a time that's honest and and connect to as many people um, that want your honesty as possible. Uh, in the book, you talk about five different types of perfectionists. Mm-hmm. Talk about those. Yeah. So it was fun writing this book because. It's agreed upon in the research that we're in the infancy of this topic, right? So there's no clinical definition for perfectionist. Perfectionism isn't, you know, a clinical disorder. And everybody has different definitions of what a perfectionist is. Some of the definitions, there's a lot of overlap. Some of them directly contravene one another. And I just thought, okay, there's no language for what I'm noticing in myself or the people in my practice. So let me put language to that. And... I want I want to highlight what I noticed about perfectionism, which is that this thing is not a bad, evil thing in us. This is, an, in my opinion, a natural, innate human impulse to see an ideal and the reality and actively strive to bridge that gap um, in in a patterned way, right? So more often than not. And when looking at that impulse, and how it plays out, there's the classic perfectionist. And classic perfectionists are what we think of when we think of perfectionists. That's the closest archetype to like the rigid, preppy, you know, here's my spreadsheets for our vacation um, activities. And classic perfectionists on the pro side, because all of these types have advantages and all of them have liabilities. On the pro side, they add structure to every environment they go into. They're highly reliable. They're very disciplined. 
and they tend to enjoy their perfectionism, you know, a lot. And on the con side, they can struggle with spontaneity and collaboration sometimes, and their relationships interpersonally can end up feeling a little more on the transactional side because it's kind of can, if you're not managing this type of perfectionism, it can look like doing a to-do list, but you're not actually engaged bringing your whole self into the moment. So people don't feel like they're really getting a sense of you necessarily. Then there is the messy perfectionist. And this type of perfectionist loves the beginning of anything, of dating, of a project, of moving in, of anything. Um, and they love the beginning because the beginning is perfect. And the ideas in your head and, you know, it's just this special moment in time, right? But messy perfectionists struggle in the middle of the process when that perfection naturally fades away because you've brought something to life, whether that's a relationship or an idea or whatever. So messy perfectionists are superstar idea generators. They have natural enthusiasm and warmth. They want to do a thousand things. And if they're not managing their perfectionism, they put their hands in all the pots, but they don't actually commit to anything. So they end up saying yes to a thousand things, but because they spread their energy so thin, because they haven't actually made a choice about what they're not going to do, they end up not able to complete things. And then, of course, that gets into a, a negative self-narrative of nobody takes me seriously. I'm not disciplined. I need to get my shit together. I'm lazy. I'm lazy, you know, all that stuff. And the counterpart to messy perfectionists are procrastinated perfectionists who want the conditions to be perfect before they start, which of course never happens. Never. And what's so interesting about this is it's not just like a work thing. Perfectionism shows up in every single context and arena of life. So you think, okay, I'm going to procrastinate tasks that I don't want to do, but a procrastinator perfectionist will just as readily delay going on vacation. Um in the same way that they might might delay a very stressful work project because it's not the right time to go on vacation and, and the weather might not be good that month and da-da-da-da-da and they're just waiting, waiting, waiting for something to be perfect. On the pros side, these people are really thoughtful. Unlike messy perfectionists, procrastinated perfectionists are not impulsive, which is a huge asset, right? They can see all opportunities from a 360-degree angle and their preparative measures are really thorough. And on the con side, of course, if you take that too far, then it just turns into paralysis and you don't end up doing the thing you want to do. Uh, then there's the intense perfectionist. And this is like, if we think of the public persona of Steve Jobs or Gordon Ramsay, um, these are people who are focused on a perfect outcome. And so they're trying to get to the end. And they're focused on efficiency and they're effortlessly direct. They do not lose that focus. And those are all advantages. However, if you're not managing this kind of perfectionism consciously, it can get out of control in the sense that your high standards turn to impossible standards and you end up being punitive with people around you or yourself um, in a really dangerous way. Um, so this can, that can look like, great, you achieved the goal, 
Now, half the people on your team are going to quit next quarter because they're all fucking miserable, you know, and they don't feel like you care about them at all. And everybody hates each other kind of thing. Or at the dinner table, it's like, great. The table looks good. The holiday, you know, decorations are up, all the things. Nobody at the table is talking or comfortable. Right. Right? Because you forced everyone to be there at 7 o'clock on the dot and this, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And then the lastly, there's the Parisian perfectionist. And this one is really interesting because this kind of perfectionism plays out interpersonally. So it's about... Why why the name Parisian? Oh, so I came up with that name um, after the beauty aesthetic of French women who give off this kind of effortless look to their beauty. And it's so chic and, and seems just totally natural. But behind the scenes, there's a whole ad going on, right? And so the Parisian perfectionist... Unlike a classic perfectionist who broadcasts their perfectionism, there's a sense of embarrassment about trying and there's a vulnerability and not wanting people to see that you care and you want something. And that's because what Parisian perfectionists care about is wanting to be liked. You know, the deeper version of that is that the ideal that they're seeking is connection. So they want to be perfectly understood. They want to perfectly like others. You know, they want to perfectly understand themselves, their communities, whatever it is. And that's wonderful because these people are naturally inclusive. They're enthusiastic and warm and and similar to messy perfectionists in a lot of ways. But if you're not managing this type of perfectionism, it turns into really toxic people-pleasing. And, you know, you're just doing a big song and dance to get people to like you forgetting what you even like yourself is so is there a struggle with vulnerability to be the authentic you and risk rejection yeah i think the immediate gratification of people pleasing is confusing for parisian perfectionists who want connection and that is sort of like the processed foods version of connection um and it's a shortcut to connection and and I, I want to be clear, it's a shortcut that doesn't work, right? It's a shortcut to a dead end. And so, but in the moment, you know, I feel this all the time in my own life. Like, we can't be conscious of all this stuff all the time, right? So you meet someone, you're caught off guard by how excited they are to talk to you. And they start talking about how they love this city and love all these things. And then you say, I love that too. And, da, 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 da. and you kind of unconsciously slip away from the present moment. And you're just trying to hold on to that connection because it feels good. And it's not like you're purposely trying to be fake or something like that. It's just that, you know, we forget sometimes. And when your forgetting becomes a pattern and you really become disconnected to yourself, that's when it's a problem. Talk about the the overlap where unmanageable perfectionism intersects with addiction or codependence? Well, unmanageable, maladaptive, negative perfectionism, whatever you want to call it, um, will intersect with anything destructive. So addiction is one of those things. You know, abusive relationships is another. You can't be in a maladaptive space and not have that dysfunction constantly growing. 
without disruption. Like you need to disrupt it with consciousness and intentionality in order for it to be healthy. So what that looks like with addiction is, you know, so many, so many different styles of perfectionism show up in the recovery world. Let's take counting like sobriety calendars, right? Um, this is this is simplifying something very complicated, but generally healthy perfectionists are people who understand that their self-worth is immutable, right? Meaning you're a whole human being already. You don't have to earn the right to, to Be joy, the right to love, the right to connection, the right to dignity, the right to freedom. Those are birthrights. They're not prizes to be won at the end of a race. And maladaptive perfectionists don't know that, right? And so if you're in a maladaptive perfectionist headspace and you're trying to get sober, what you're going to say is, oh, I'm 10 days sober. I'm doing good. I deserve good things. I deserve a lot of love. I deserve a lot of freedom. I'm going to rest. I'm going to take care of myself because I'm sober. That means I'm a, I'm a good person and I'm doing good. And then let's say you relapse at day 42. You just sink like a stone into all the negativity um, that probably brought you to addiction, right? I'm a piece of shit now. I failed. None of those 42 days counts. Um, I'm starting over at square one. None of that stuff is true, right? But you immediately attach your behavioral mistake of drinking, smoking, whatever it is, to your self-worth. And you say, I was good and worthy when I was sober, but now that I've relapsed, I don't deserve anything good. I'm not even going to go to a meeting because I just deserve to punish myself. Which is the gasoline for the cycle of shame and, you know. Yeah, it really is. And it's not perfectionism that's the problem. It's punishing yourself that's the problem. It's how you respond to your perfectionism. And so... You know, that's the great unlock here is that you don't have to change who you are. You don't have to not be a perfectionist to be healthy. What you do have to do is learn how to be compassionate with yourself. Oh, so hard. You cannot be a healthy person without understanding how to be compassionate with yourself. Maybe you understand it intuitively and you don't have the language for it. And, and hey, whatever works, that's good with me. If you don't, then, you know, I offer Kristen, Dr. Kristen Neff's framework of self-compassion, which How I How do you spell her last name? N-E-F-F. Okay. It's so helpful. She's so brilliant. She's a pioneer in her field. And she was the first person to really research self-compassion, which is a word that like, how are you supposed to know what that means, really? It just sounds mm -hmm. like being extra nice to yourself. Right. But that's not what it is. Self-compassion is a resiliency building tool that involves three steps. And- those three steps are mindfulness, what we talked about before of realizing that, yes, you feel disappointed. Yes, you feel, you know, not worthy of any of this stuff because you had that drink or you picked up whatever. That's not all you feel. You know, you also might feel curious about something. You also might feel the desire to connect with someone. You also might feel like maybe those 42 days did count for something. Mm -hmm. You know, you also might be, feel playful, tired, smart, whatever it is. Um, the second component is kindness. And kindness is really about meeting yourself with connection. It's not about, you know, the difference between kindness, being kind and being polite 
is that when you're polite, you're doing something that is based on propriety, right? So it can be very perfunctory. Mm-hmm. When you're kind, your goal is connection. You're not trying to solve a problem. You're not trying to do anything other than genuinely connect to someone. Someone falls, you say, oh my God, that, that must have really hurt. That's kind, right? Um, you, you didn't solve their problem. You know, you didn't, you know what I mean? Um, so kindness requires that you acknowledge that you're in pain. And it looks like saying, instead of externalizing stuff and being, that meeting was so hard or the holidays are so frustrating, you're bringing it on the eye and saying, I'm hurting. I am tired. I don't know how to do this. And then after you acknowledge you're in pain, you meet that pain with kindness. Like, I'm hurting. Maybe I should just sit down for a second. Maybe I should make myself a tea. Maybe I could call somebody, text somebody. You know, you're not trying to like do damage control and fix and whatever. Right. You're just trying to be kind. It's very, it's very simple and very hard. Um, and the last one is probably my favorite, if I had to pick, of Neff's framework. It's common humanity. And that's about understanding that we live in a world of billions of human beings. And whatever idiosyncratic thing is happening with your particular problem, it's actually not a unique problem. And millions of people are probably feeling it right now. Now, the less we talk about problems, the more they feel uncommon. Mm -hmm. And that makes us feel isolated. Sexual abuse is a good example. That's still somewhat taboo to talk about in our culture. So part of the problem of sexual abuse is obviously the traumatic history. Another part, and what research suggests is somewhat of an even larger part, is the shame that people feel because they feel alone in it. So common humanity is about recognizing that you're not alone. And we intellectually concede to that, but we don't emotionally register it. Huge gap. Which is why being in the rooms is so helpful because you're literally hearing people tell their stories and you don't even have to speak to understand, oh, I'm really not alone. This is actually really common. And that helps you feel connected. And when you feel connected, your stress response stops being so activated all the time. And you're able to kind of get in a little bit of an expansive place, a solutions-oriented place, like a safe space. And some of us don't even know that that exists until we experience it and mm-hmm. realize that we have been living the opposite of that and thought that that was normal. Mm, it's, what, what do you mean by that? It's like trying to describe um, color to someone uh, who, mm. who's never been able to see. Um, I, for instance, I didn't understand that intimacy was lacking in my life until I got into recovery and experienced deep intimacy mm-hmm. and experienced being loved um, in in a way uh, that was different than how I imagined what love and acceptance would feel like. Like I never mm-hmm. imagined that I would sit in a room, you know, half of it filled with guys who had been in prison mm-hmm. and we'd be laughing and crying. Uh, mm-hmm. at the stories that that we would tell mm-hmm. and i would feel i i say it very often this is my jacuzzi mm. this is where i come and i get so relaxed in there because i feel so much love and trust and compassion right that I, i'm not trying to sleep 
Yeah. I close my eyes because I feel so fucking safe. Mm. I didn't know until I experienced that, that that was a feeling that a human being could experience. My um, level of mm-hmm. relaxation mm-hmm. had never gotten near there. Wow. So yeah. I assumed that the relaxation and the comfort that I'd felt previously in my life was the tail end of the road of, right. you know, the ultimate of what relaxation could feel like. Little did I know yeah. it was only a taste. And yeah. Yeah. But I think there was a part of you that might know, because I think, you know, a lot of people have that experience of the baseline being so, you know, six feet under the floorboards kind of thing that you get any kind of taste of generic or superficial connection and you're like, oh, I guess this is it. I guess there's something wrong with me and I'm fucked up because this isn't making me happy. Um, But the fact, again, that you're in pain and that when you are sitting quietly with yourself and these moments you know, of pain and frustration and misery sneak up on you, that's information that your body and mind are trying to give you of there's something more. You know, I want to point out that, and I talk to my clients about this all the time, like imagine a world in which you had an absence of all the stuff you're actually, you're trying to get rid of, right? Like, because a lot of people move through life and they're very much okay with superficial levels of connection and truly want to just acquire things and broadcast that acquisition. And they're, they're really happy with that, Right. They're not secretly in pain and, and crying, mm-hmm. you know? And so you if you're one of the people that is secretly or openly in pain and suffering, it's because a part of you is very attuned and very smart and very awake to the fact that there is more. You might not know what it looks like. You might not know where the source is, but take that pain and turn it into curiosity. I'm I'm so glad that you brought up the topic of the body. Mm. There are so many struggles in life that I think would be insurmountable if we didn't begin to listen to our body and we didn't begin to say, uh, you know, I just have to ignore this feeling in Mm me. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think it's especially I think if we grew up in emotionally invalidating environments or, you know, in an environment where, uh, you know, we were told down was up, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. There was conditional love. It is so hard to get back into your body and to begin to trust mm-hmm. what it is you're feeling and to be curious about it rather than push it aside and say, you know, I, I can't afford to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, it's such a good point that you're bringing up because if you are really detached and you don't have a sense of embodiment, your body's going to ring that bell and it's going to sound like an alarm and mm-hmm. it's going to freak you out and you're going to want to numb it because your body is just trying to get your attention and it has to be so loud in relation to how uh, how unaware or how unfamiliar safety feels for you. You know, I personally feel that that is a big reason why panic attacks happen is because 
your body is trying in all these ways to signal to you. No, it's not the only reason, but your body's trying to signal to you in all these ways that don't get picked up. So your body says, fuck it, I'm going to just throw a wrench in the entire system and do something that you cannot ignore. I think nightmares are the same, Mm. you know, etiology in some regards. And, you know, once you attend to it, then your body calms down because its job of getting your attention is now done. And so it is a really powerful system that we're working with that we underestimate. It's it's so uh, brilliant. And I think you have to live kind of a long time to really appreciate the things that your body does. To To look back and say, oh, it buried that trauma. So mm-hmm. I could survive mm-hmm. and get out of the house. Yeah. And then it began sent, sending me signals once I was out of the house mm-hmm. that something needs to be looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it sends me signals uh, that, you know, when you're around this person, you get a stomach ache. Mm-hmm. That might be something to look at. Is it something that that you're bringing to the table where you're pl- placing unnecessarily high expectations on thinking you got to impress this person to get their love or are they toxic and yeah. they're manipulative and yeah. you can't call them on it because it's so fucking under the radar that mm-hmm. you don't want to be impolite you mm-hmm. know it could be a thousand things but i think if we don't say why do i have a stomach ache mm-hmm. we miss out on all these beautiful paths of healing and growth and connection and in and, and understanding yes and you know, there is, everybody's heard the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and I know I'm supposed to be promoting my book, but what I'm really promoting more than anything is mental health, and the best book that I ever read that is so brilliant about this is What Happened to You by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah, and it's written as a conversation, so it's really actually easy to read. It's on trauma and resilience, which sounds like a really heavy topic, like, ugh, no thank you. I'd rather watch three hours of mindless TV. But it actually has a lot of storytelling. It's really well done. It's very easy to like synthesize and take in. And the, and it's, it's little small nuggets. And it talks about exactly what you're talking about is the brilliance of the body and how protective it is. And then once you get into some semblance of safety, how much the body reaches out to you to try to call you back. To it so that we can live holistically and, you know, in our wholeness and alignment instead of in this fragmented, disjointed way. Talk about uh, eudaimonic versus hedonic. Mm-hmm. Am I pronouncing those? I know hedonic yeah. I'm pronouncing correctly. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about what we value, you want to be aware of these two forms of well-being, right? And hedonic well-being is about making yourself feel good um, in a sort of dopamine kick way, right? So when I think of happiness, I think of hedonic pleasures. When I think of joy, I think of eudaimonic pleasures. So joyful, eudaimonic living doesn't necessarily make you feel happy all the time or even a lot of the time, happiness isn't the goal. The goal is meaning. And so perfectionists are eudaimonically oriented. They want meaning in their life. 
they're not trying to achieve a goal necessarily. They're trying to achieve the ideal that the goal represents. That's why when a perfectionist achieves a goal, they always move on to the next goal, a bigger goal, because they're not after the goal. They're they're it's the chase. They're, yeah, they're they're after the ideal and, and chasing that ideal. Um, and so I think it's a really important thing to keep in mind because sometimes people think, oh, I'm not happy, something's wrong. When if happiness is a value to you, then maybe something is wrong and you need to do more, you know, dopamine kind of stuff like play video games mm-hmm. and watch TV that entertains you in the exact moment that you're watching it. But what I would challenge people to think about is, is happiness more important or is meaning more important? They're not mutually exclusive, but they're not one in the same. And for most perfectionists, meaning is a lot more important. So when you're not happy, um, it's not automatically a signal of dysfunction. It doesn't automatically mean something is wrong with you. We're human beings. We're not supposed to be happy all the time. There's a lot of suffering around us and within us. And if you're present and awake in the world, you're going to feel that sometimes. And that's not automatically bad. Anything else that you would... uh, Oh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is um, the term spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, Your degree, one of your degrees, is in psychology and uh, I got postgraduate certification in that, yeah. So that's not a degree per se, but... I I love when people talk about spirituality not in a worshipful way sense mm-hmm. but in the sense of the connection between the mind the body and the and the spirit because i think there's so much damage has been done by organized religion mm-hmm. that spirituality as soon as some of us hear that word we check out because we're yeah. like somebody's going to talk about god and get fucking boring yeah. and monopolize the conversation yeah. and i'm going to have a stomach ache right well to me this is the way that i have sorted it out in my mind to me, God, what we think about as God, is is just presence. And I say just presence as if presence is some like minimized thing. But I think presence is the most powerful energy in the world. Being able to be in the moment. Yes. Um, so God is presence. Spirituality is access to presence. Religion is instruction on access to presence. And that's how I think about it. I love it. That, my God... What a, what a beautifully is that in your book? I didn't put that in the book. That you got your next book. I got it. Right. I got to put that in the book. That is so beautifully succinct. The the other thing that I, I heard somebody say one time about the difference between religion and spirituality is, um, religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for people who have been there. Mm. Oh, I like that too. Uh, yeah, well, that's now good. You got a second book you got to write. <laughs> oh, I already had that. Just an amazing. Amazing job with the with the book. I mean, you, Thank you you really really open up the conversation, and I love anytime somebody takes a topic that we think we knew everything about, mm-hmm. and they expand it out and mm-hmm. and don't do it in a quick fix. Here's my ten steps for a better life, bullshitty kind of way, mm-hmm. but do it in a here's an angle to look at this in addition to the way you already look at it. And that to to me um, is 
just a, a sign of a great book and um thank you and a great you know, thinker my intention with this book was to create a piece of work that engendered connection Be, and and i think if you were connected the rest begins to work itself out you know like things will fall into place and connection to me is the cardinal marker of mental wellness and the first place that anybody um, who's struggling should go. So I would didn't I didn't nor could you write a book that's like here's instructions on how to be a happy right. human. And you know to bring it back to Dr. Perry's research, the greatest marker of mental health is relational wealth. It supersedes geography, income, all the stuff is how connected do you feel to yourself and the people around you. And it only takes one real connection. It doesn't even have to be in person. You know, you could feel really connected. It's called a parasocial relationship to a podcast host, mm-hmm. to an author who's not even alive anymore, to, you know, an artist who you feel a kinship with, musicians, whatever. Connection comes in so many forms. And I think taking any connection you can get is always a good idea. The book is called The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, social media? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Catherine Morgan Schaffler, and my website is also my name, CatherineMorganShaffler.com. And it's S-C-H-A-F-L-E-R. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Of course, Gracie's got to get just one last chain jingle in there. Uh, Gracie says to say hi, by the way. Oh my God, she was so fucking cute this morning. I woke up in bed and, and I'm very grateful I have the luxury to not have to pop up immediately and start cooking for kids or, you know, get in a traffic jam to get to work so I can lounge around in bed. And she, dog owners or cat owners, I know you know this feeling when your dog strikes the perfect snuggling position with you. And she had her head right against my neck. So I'm laying in bed, you know, my head kind of propped up on a pillow. And she's like laying on my shoulder with her head like against my chin and neck. We must have sat like that for 20 minutes while just over and over, I told her that she was the princess, an angel, the most beautiful girl that had ever been created in the universe that she's smart, funny, fast, strong, lovable. And then I just repeated these things over and over again for like 20 minutes. I'm glad that dogs can't speak because I think we would be crushed to know that maybe they don't love us as they as much, you know, Maybe they just, maybe she thinks of me as not even like a guy, like, oh, that's Paul. She just thinks, oh, here comes the treat machine. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Happy Moments survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself, what's going on up there? And she writes, today I shared eye contact with someone during a conversation. I've been acting very withdrawn from all my friends for weeks now due to chronic stress and just general unhealthy and intrusive thoughts and it felt so good to be seen for the first time in so long i hadn't had a conversation 
with this particular person in over a month, and just the fact that he listened to me, engaged me in a conversation, and made eye contact meant the world to me, more than he'll ever know. Can I tell you how much I fucking love that? I love that that is, that, that A, you felt that way, and B, that these are doable moments that we can have in our lives, that we can be there for other people with something as simple as listening and having eye contact, getting together for coffee, and just being present. And I think it's, it's I hate to sound like an old fuck, but I think it's, it's becoming endangered with today's phone culture and just the need for constant stimulation and... Uh, it, it can be hard sometimes to, to sit still and listen to some fucking windbag go on about their stupid fucking life. Did that take a bad turn? That felt like that did. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Lexi. Um, she identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. She's not sure if she has been emotionally or physically abused. <clears throat> darkest thoughts. I am married, but things aren't perfect. My husband is not physically abusive, but has a short fuse and gets angrily, gets angry easily over minor things. It gets wearing after a while. I always back down when we have arguments because I find it's easier than being yelled at. I find myself attracted to all sorts of guys I know and fantasizing about flirting with them or having an affair. I feel like my husband, quote, deserves, unquote, it for sometimes being a jerk. This is an acquaintance. There is an acquaintance of ours who I'm very attracted to, and I always try to look my best whenever I see him. I don't think I could ever bring myself to act on my feelings, but I keep hoping maybe he'll make a move. But then I wonder, would I want to be with a guy who'd have an affair with a married woman? Sometimes I think about the fact that my husband is quite a bit older than me and not in the best shape, so maybe he'll die, he'll die while I'm still youngish and I can make a move on this acquaintance. It sounds like I want him to die. I don't, but I just think about what if sometimes. Thank you for your honesty about that. And I really want to encourage you, as difficult as it is, to take back that power you're giving him by backing down. And I'm not saying yell right back at him, but when we sweep shit under the rug, uh, our fucking relationships get lumpy. Uh and it's really, really important to establish um, ways to communicate with someone. And if your husband isn't willing to work on that, fucking pull the eject button and uh, get somebody who can communicate with you. Because cheating, I don't think the best solution for uh, lack of intimacy and who knows, maybe your husband can change. Maybe, maybe he can't. Maybe he's always going to be a rageaholic. But if you at least put the feelers out there for you guys to talk to somebody so that you can learn how to communicate better, uh, you're giving him an opportunity to step up and show that he cares about you enough to try to change. Or the opposite, that he's not going to put the work in, in which case, why the fuck would you stick around? Darkest Secrets. I accidentally had an emotional affair with someone. It sounds stupid to say that, but I wasn't attracted to him at all. I just saw him as a friend, and he was willing to listen to me vent about my mental issues, in parentheses, which my husband isn't, and that's not a good sign, and I didn't realize 
where things were heading until he started hinting that he wanted to sleep together. I stopped hanging out with him immediately and told him that I wasn't interested in that. My husband doesn't know about it at all. He doesn't know this person exists as it was someone from work and our time together was usually during lunch breaks. In parentheses, I don't work there anymore. Well, that, that is good. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. All my life, I've been fascinated by episodes of TV shows and movies where someone is hypnotized or mind controlled. I remember being three or four years old and being really interested in this episode of one of my cartoons where people were hypnotized. I didn't connect it with anything sexual until I hit puberty. I was watching a TV show in an episode where some characters were drugged, and I suddenly felt a throbbing warmth in my genitals. I had never felt that before and only later realized that I had, for the first time, become horny. Today, today I peruse websites where people write and publish erotic mind control fiction. In parentheses, yes, this is a thing. Um, during sex, I almost never have an orgasm unless I am replaying one of these stories in my mind. My husband knows, doesn't know uh, about this. Uh, have you shared these things with others? No, absolutely not. Never. Uh, why? Because I'm a freak. You are not a freak. You are not a freak. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little better for venting, but seeing this all typed out makes me realize what a freak I am. You are not a freak. Everybody has something that pushes their button. You know, I think so many people to reach climax have to go to some type of uh, image or scenario in their head. And that doesn't necessarily mean, I think, I think it would be different if you had to be that way the entire time you were engaged in sex with somebody, but sometimes you need a little something. And if you're lucky, you'll be in a partnership with somebody who you can share those things with. But understandably, some of us don't want to do that. But I can tell you when you do, and it's, and it's met encouragingly and compassionately by the other person it makes you feel really seen and it helps you feel really close to them during during sex and it's it's just pretty awesome and speaking of awesome this is an email i got uh and they write hello dear i hope you are doing fine can you assist me in removing 13 million dollars from my country they don't say what country it is if you're interested i'll give you 10 percent of the money 10 percent what the fuck that is, I don't know if I've ever been that offended. Does this person know that gen, the going rate is 40 to 50%? I mean, 30 is the low end, but how fucking dare you? I'll give you 10% of the money and all the information you need, but first you must express your interest and, and then this is in caps, trust by sending me a scanned copy of your identification, and I'll send you mine in return. So, I did. I sent her an ID. It was my it's my blockbuster card, which is I believe it's expired. Um, and she sent me her blockbuster card, which is still valid. So I can imagine whatever country she lives in, they still rent uh, VHS. Uh, please keep this transaction and all parties' identities private. I have. Totally private. I've only advertised this on MySpace. 
Meanwhile, I discovered your email address while searching the internet. My stomach dropped when I read that. Because I thought, what is making my email address come up when people do searches on the internet? And so I did a little homework and I found out that the search words that trigger me to come up on the internet are non-smokers with smoker teeth and who would lose a race to a mummy. So I was a little depressed, but I'm kind of flattered that she would want to get into business with a slow guy with yellow teeth. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Oscar. He identifies as gay. He's in his 60s. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. He's been physically abused and emotionally abused. He writes, in my family of origin, touch was always for a purely practical purpose, like dressing children or for violent punishment. I can't ever recall a hug that comforted or soothed a child. Even today, I have trouble accepting a friendly touch on the shoulder or hand. I often recoil from hugs, especially among family. Later in her life, my mother became huggy and would often demand some kind of physical affection. She would sometimes adopt a playful tone and say, come over here and give your mother a hug. It creeped me out. I really didn't want her. I really didn't want to feel her touch when for so many years, the only time I felt her was when she slapped me. That has to be a mindfuck. Uh, darkest thoughts, sexual recklessness, sex with strangers, shedding my body and inhabiting a new one, one which I can destroy or throw away when I choose, never to be a permanent person again. Wow, I have never thought about that. Inhabiting a body that you could just wear out and throw away and get a new one. Oh, man. What a trip. I've got something new to fantasize about. Darkest Secrets, I have touched people inappropriately. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I dream of comfort sex, physically undemanding, where I can retreat into myself and simply enjoy gentle, novel sensations, uh, which another human being has invented for me to enjoy. It might seem passive to an observer, but for me, I imagine it to be consummately empowering. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Orgasming in your presence is worse than orgasming on my own. It releases no sexual tension. In fact, sex with an intimate partner always makes me feel used or like a user. He didn't specify who he would like to say that to, but um, yeah, man, there are... It is lonelier being in a relationship that doesn't work than not being in a relationship. That's at least in my feelings. What, if anything, do you wish for? A cool, dark room with a comfortable bed and a handsome stranger. The only person I can trust not to hurt me is a stranger. Have you shared these things with others? After 18 years together, I think my husband senses many of these things, but we have never discussed it explicitly. How do you feel after writing these things down? I still feel crappy, but it's slightly better crap. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Strangers can change your life. 
Any comments to make the podcast better? You needn't put yourself down so much, Paul. I know it makes you feel better in the moment, but aren't there other better ways to reassure yourself? There probably are, but I swear to God in that moment where I'm like, oh my God, that was so stupid what I just said, or everybody's going to stop listening or, you know, whatever ridiculously self-centered, black and white, perfectionist thought I have. Uh, It's hard to resist it in that moment and just to accept my humanity. But thank you for, thank you for suggesting that anyway. And thank you for your survey. This is a happy moment filled out by Amazon lady. And uh, she writes, waking up in the morning with my dogs, my little old man laying on my face, rubbing the sleep away from his eyes with his paws, and my big girl puppy laying next to me, forcing her head into my neck so I will give her kisses. Laying outside in the sun, feeling the sun beam down onto my skin, smelling the fresh air, hearing the sounds of the birds chirping, and admiring my beautiful plants. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Nice and simple and doable. I fucking love doable, happy moments. I think so often we just want the home run, you know, the lottery or the, you know, the profession that's everybody is going to envy. But really, it, it, I've met enough miserable people that are workaholics and wealthy to know that they're Help happiness can be found elsewhere. But still, in the meantime, I'd like to have a lot of money. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I am not feeling suicidal. She identifies as bisexual. She is 60 and a half, to be exact, she writes. Uh, she says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. We always had food, except for once. My dad always had a job. The family stuff was erratic. I remember thinking, I sure hope this phase of family dinner, celebrating holidays, family vacation is over soon. This is true, not part of my fable. She was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. In 1970, I was a 13-year-old virgin looking for ways to escape. Oh, this was filled out uh, uh, a couple of years ago, so that's why. Um... I'm way, way behind on the shame and secret surveys. Um, In 1970, I was a 13-year-old virgin looking for ways to escape, not rebel, my overprotective but also very disinterested parents. I and my girlfriend allowed a 30-year-old man to seduce us one at a time in the back of his store slash business. We took turns, and we kept coming back for more. I kept returning because I was trying to win him. I wanted him to like me more, pick me, not because I in any way knew how to enjoy the sex. Uh, You ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. Workaholism kept my father away most of the time. Since he believed in corporal punishment, this might have been a good thing. My mother liked her three beautiful daughters when we were little, but as we outgrew the cute we no longer validated her worth. I've always cringed a bit when people told me I was a, I, I was beautiful. That's from my mother, I wanted to shout, uh, like something about me. When I got engaged at age 21, my mother approved the marriage saying, he's handsome, you'll have beautiful babies. However, being the hypocrite I am, 
I spent the beauty equals value currency and still constantly compare myself to other women. I'm only realizing this now at age 60 when my looks are going. Any positive experiences with abusers? My dad grew up in the Depression. I know this is why he can't leave a task undone that could easily earn him some security or money. I think he was genuinely generous with his money, never his time, when he finally had a little to share. He was also physically beaten by both his mom and dad for boyish pranks. I don't think he ever did anything evil, just stupid. Yes, my feelings are complicated, and I did and continue to always forgive him. He's 87 years old. But I don't understand why he can't see that his reactions, throwing shit, breaking walls and doors, are the same as his parents'. My mom died when I was 29. She smoked herself to death. She died without a gray hair or wrinkle, though. I guess that was her goal. The real complication here is that I can't really conjure up any feelings of fondness or respect for either of them. When my relatives or sisters criticize me for not visiting them, I think to myself, well, tell me why you visit them. I can't understand you. Darkest Thoughts My darkest thoughts are about getting beaten while tied up on a stake and then getting gang-banged. I also think about sex with my son and a horse falling in love with me, although I just want the horse love, not real sex with her or him. Darkest secrets. Well, my deepest secret is that I lie a lot. I have this mythical childhood that I've perfected as an ongoing theme and I refer to it frequently. It's easy to keep it straight since since very few people around me knew me as a child or know my family. Since my 30-plus year not-happy marriage fell apart three years ago, I also generally have two to four men that I am fucking and tell them that they are all the only ones. As soon as I hook one in, I remove my profile from the dating app where we met and kind of expect them to do the same. I've never had one who actually did take down their profile, but then again, I haven't had a relationship that has lasted more than six weeks either. By the way, despite my promiscuity, I've never had an orgasm with another person, which kind of leads me to my biggest lie, which inflicts pain pretty much only on me. I fake being multi-orgasmic, but boy, obey. Oh boy, I am a whole lot of fun to fuck. Uh, Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Most powerful is that I am adored, protected, beloved. The fantasy person is made up, a sort of Arab prince that I urge to take another wife since I'm past childbearing age, but he loves me best. Sharing this, the first and probably only time I ever will, shows me how the webs of childhood still hold me as that little girl who needs to shine over her sisters. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, Your silence crushes me. You say you want out of the lifestyle, swinging, BDSM, whatever, but what you really want to say is that I'm not a candidate for your long-term forever relationship. Why won't you just tell me that? What, if anything, do you wish for? It is so hard to find someone who wants and is willing to tell the truth. I know this includes me. I actually don't know where to start. I think a support group would be a great place for you to start. Um, you got a lot of issues that you're juggling, so you might look, you might look into that. And I think you might find 
the the bond of truth in a platonic way there that I think might give you the thread to start unraveling in a good way these other things that you're feeling stuck in. If you share these things with others, I told my husband 36 years into our marriage that I'd never, never had an orgasm with him. He didn't believe me and describe instances when he knew I had. I told a lover that I wanted to be his once a week primary. I didn't even demand monogamy. He told me that was insane. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel the rope of my life circling, intertwining, repeating. I can't tell what is beginning or end. I can't go on as is. Yes, it still is pretty fun, or I can begin to lay it out, cut some pieces out, measure it. My choice. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I, ha- I have hope that that you can begin to move in the direction that you want to, but it's going to... I think it's going to require doing different things. You know, it's a, it's an old cliche, but um, if we want things to change, we we got to mix things up. We have to start taking different actions, meeting different people, asking for help. And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Pandulian Panther. And uh, she writes, I've been struggling with a complete case of the blues lately. No motivation to do anything but lie in bed and eat junk food. And every time I look or go outside, everything was just cold and gray. Today, I felt particularly down as the one thing I looked forward to, my kickboxing class, was canceled. But I had arranged to have coffee with a colleague. So after lying around all morning, I finally showered and went to meet him. I noticed it wasn't raining or snowing, so I decided to walk into town rather than taking the tram, and there were even a few rays of sunshine. After coffee, I decided to walk home. It was about 5 p.m., and a few weeks ago, it would have been completely dark, but it was still kind of light outside. I started to feel for the first time after what felt like ages that there was some kind of hope that one day, spring and summer will come again, and it will become warm and sunny. When I got to my street, it was still light, and I didn't want to go inside at all, so I walked into a nearby park, listening to voice messages from two of my closest friends who live far away, and the noises of other people and dogs enjoying the park around me. I breathed the fresh air, which smelled slightly of bonfire, and felt almost like someone who's gotten out of prison or something and is finally free. When I'd run out of voice messages, I started listening to your podcast and headed back home. I walked past one of those shelves where people leave old books to give away. I hardly ever see a book in one of those shelves that I want to read, but today someone had left a really good one, which I took with me. I got home just as the very last pink clouds had turned dark, feeling more alive than I have for a long time and decided to fill in this survey. Love it. Love it. And I've got to assume that she took that book and threw it in the bonfire. I mean, that's how I celebrate a good day. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that uh, 
you're so not alone. Our outsides might be so different, but inside, I think we're all feeling probably the same five or six things. And uh, nothing degrades the quality of our life like obsessing about the quality of our life. Or should I be say lives? I don't know. You figure it out. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.